welcome to Borough Talks, a series of, um, we hope, inspiring food discussion talks for Borough Market, um, all about food and food culture. I am Angela Platten, I am a food writer and a cook and a historian, and I'm the, uh, the host of the Borough Talks season. Um, we're here today um, speaking to the writers of an incredible cookbook. We have so many people joining us today, so it's just brilliant. So I think we should ask uh, Sammy and Tara to join us, to join us as well. Hello Tara, hello, hello Sammy. Hello. Oh, thank you, thank you guys so much for joining us today for Barrow Talks. Um, it feels an incredible thrill to be talking to you about your um, your amazing, amazing book. And we've all got <laughs> clutching, as I hope everybody who's watching is clutching, a copy um, of Fallacy, which um, I have to say I think is just a complete glory of a book. Um, in honesty, I set this up about wanting to talk about it before I had the book. Um, and I was already looking forward to it and pumped for having it. And then it arrived and my socks were just completely knocked off. And I went through it, turning down the pages of everything I wanted to talk to you about. And then I had to stop because it was just getting <laughs> ridiculous because so many pages were getting turned down. So I'm going to try and crack through as much of that as we can. Um, so I think I'd like to kick off, if you don't mind, guys, by talking about a little bit of the background to the creative process of doing the book. You know, in some ways, a follow on from Jerusalem, but obviously looking at the wider um, food context and cultural context. I'd just love to know a little bit about how, how the book came into being. I mean, it, uh, it's, uh, I keep saying that, you know, it's a, it's a book that uh, I always wanted to make and uh, somehow you just put it in the corner and kind of life goes so quickly and fast and before you know it you have two restaurants and four delis and, and uh, empire yeah. and Sammy, do you mean you even felt that whilst you were doing jerusalem or well, palestinian was uh, palestinian food was uh, uh, with me the whole time i mean i used my mum's recipes and the spicing and all the kind of key ingredients like the tahini and the sumac and the zatar they were always around. It's yeah. just uh, the focus on the Palestinian as as a cuisine uh, came uh, when when we started working with Jeris uh, on Jerusalem with Yotam. I kind of said, I, I, I must do this book, and it just took another eight years to uh, actually sit down and do a, a proposal and just present it to the publisher. And Tara joined just after that. And I, so think also, I think also the market's ready to, because for me, I feel like every time you open a sort of mag, a, a supermarket magazine, it all feels kind of generically Middle Eastern. And I think the market's also ready to take one step on and, and actually zoom in on a bit on sort of what makes Palestinian food Palestinian rather than just sort of generic Middle Eastern food. So I think, I think everyone else is ready to, to have the next book as well. I think that's a really, really interesting point, Tara, because you think that, that that's happened as well, hasn't it, with Chinese food and Indian food, you know, at one stage, very kind of, you know, just looking at it in a very broad brushstroke and then dipping into the, the specifics of, you know, what's happening in different places. So I haven't really thought about it that way, but that's a really, really, really good point. So, um, and I think also, sorry to interrupt, I also think yeah. a cookbook's a really, um, or we saw our cookbook as a, as a really um, useful book for people who are intimidated by their lack of knowledge about this area because it's such a, uh, it's yeah, the sort of, pe people are kind of held back by, by not wanting to ask the wrong question or the right question and they don't know what's what or who's who or what, where is Palestine or what is Palestine. And actually we took this opportunity to, 
um, have all these amazing recipes. We've got over 110 recipes, but we also tell lots of stories in the book about modern day Palestine today. And I think a cookbook is such a good way to tell stories about history and place and people, as well as all the incredible recipes and ingredients as well. I think that's completely it. I always say, um, I run the cookbook club for Borough Market, and whenever we're talking about any book, I always find myself saying that food and cookbooks tell you so much about people, place and time. That's why they're special. And I feel that this book is those things at the absolute max. Um, I pulled out a phrase, and you have the lovely, in, in, in the introduction, you have a lovely phrase. We say, recipes are like stories, and stories are like recipes. And that and that, that uh, connection is very much at the heart of what the book is, and that comes across completely as you say it's very it's quite political but it's also very sociological it's very cultural and it tells you it tells you so much about what's going on but does it in a i want to say in a general having, having that sort of having those two things playing off against each other also you know as, as with stories as they get told and passed from person to person details change and things but the kind of the essence remains the same and then we've applied the same approach very much to our recipes which we're sort of handing on and wanting to move forward kind of slightly push the envelope on um, and details change from person to person and and from the traditional to what we've done with them here um, but then as with good stories at the essence we're hoping very much remains the same yeah so sammy you mentioned um about also Sorry, I just wanted to add that very much, you know, this, this part of the world, which is, we're talking about Israel and Palestine, it's quite a troubled area and food in Palestine play a big part of, you know, the whole identity and the connection to the land, farming, the, the recipes that hand it from one generation to another, they, the, preserve, uh, the, 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 the way of kind of preserving everything, it's part of this whole kind of culture and uh, we can't you know write a cookbook about palestinian palestinian food without kind of taking um in in the frame the whole picture without kind of trying to ignore what's happening there and how is it happening and also you know the, the food culture yeah i mean i have to say in honesty i feel like i learned an awful lot about you know what's going on in the region from your book. You kind of grow up hearing it on the news. Our our work is done. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you can't you can't read it and not come away feeling yeah. so much more knowledgeable. But it's not just about the politics. It's yeah. about it in, in the wider cultural context. See, um, I picked out a few of the stories that you tell, which I think illustrate things um, so well. And I, I really love the story you told about fishing in Gaza. Yeah. Tell me a little yeah. bit more about that. It's, uh, Tara, go ahead. Well, I mean, so that's, that's, we've got, we've got 12 profiles in the book. And um, I'd say that one's the most sobering. And most of the profiles we tell are set in refugee camps or, or places of hardship. But the stories they tell are actually of people who are doing really exciting, entrepreneurial, delicious things with food. Um, but the fishing in Gaza profile is is uh, quite bleak in terms of what's happened to the the catch due to regulations and changing boundaries and and the line at which fishermen are allowed to go out is getting kind of smaller and smaller and smaller and the impact of then this overfishing within a small small space. So uh, actually, it's not it's not a profile that most people sort of bring up for discussion because because discussions about Gaza are tough to kind of be positive yeah. about. Yeah, no, and I think that's maybe why it resonated actually, that it did, it felt like something which was very powerful. Um, and it, 
but done in such a beautiful way in the way you weave it into the book and as I say you know uh, incredibly informative you know, but, but in a very particular way of doing it. But then with, uh, but then with this book we you know it's, everything is politics but then we also want to people to read this book and when they think of Gaza to be to be aware and mindful and talking about what's going on but also for people to think about oh Gaza isn't that kind of green chili and dill and garlic yeah. that triangles so much to the food so and when they think about West Bank, to think about the sort of positive stories that we tell. And so it's this kind of paradox that's constantly, yeah. that's constantly held because it's well, not one thing or the other or black and white or just kind of hopeless. There's so much hope as well. Yeah, well, the, um, the yogurt making ladies of Bethlehem. Yeah, I mean, just like we didn't have more fun than hanging out with them for the morning. Can you, um, just because anyone who hasn't yet you know, read that bit of the book, um, can you just tell me a little bit um, about that story about finding the yogurt making ladies of Bethlehem? <laughs> We, we wanted to, to know how to make kishk, which is a, a fermented yogurt. They also call it jamit sometimes. We were told that this lady makes them and we went there and we met. She, she's an amazing woman who have few sheep and she just makes her own milk and cheese and yogurt. And of course, you know, you, you go there and they, they're like 30 or 40 grandchildren and they all kind of sit around and she I mean, just literally. shared And Sammy says 30 or 40, this woman had about 32 goats and she had, Sammy, I think it was more than that. It was about 45 grandchildren. It was extraordinary. Something like this. And they all kind of gather around and they want us to try everything, but it wasn't the season to make the fermented yogurt. So we put it on hold. And then the next trip we did, we met with these, three women that uh, they have their own network of make, uh, making cheese and kishk and yogurt and different kind of um, yogurt drinks like, um, what do you call it? Um, like kefir. Uh, and Kefir, yeah. They may basically, they connect with each other and they make their, their own kind of uh, types of cheeses and they don't sell it commercially, they just sell it for people that kind of uh, just call and just say, can I just come and taste your cheese? They, they welcome them and then they sell it to them or they supply them on a weekly basis. And they are amazing because they just make it in their own kitchen in, at yeah. home. But kind of finding these ladies, we felt like we were sort of like on a sort of drug deal or something. We kept being passed from kind of one car to another and kind of handed on because initially we were trying to find them through, we had ways as our sat-nav but yeah. Wales wasn't recognizing Palestine as existing. Um, so we were sort of let down, let down by, by technology. And so we were sort of handed from person to person and eventually found them and went up various flights of stairs. Um, and then, yeah, then all the kind of the, you know, because actually making labne and making the balls, which you've got in the book, is super simple. You're just hanging yogurt. But yeah, it was a beautiful morning. But so, so evocative in the book, the way. And I was just thinking, you know, how did you find all these people? and just, you know, discover all of these connections? Well, we had quite a different approach because I'm very kind of, I like a spreadsheet, I like a plan, I like a sort of itinerary. And I'd send all these emails from the test kitchen in Camden, sort of trying to book everything up in Palestine. So I mean, just sort of watching on, shaking his head like Tara, it's just not the way it works. We've just got to turn up, <laughs> play it cool, have some time on our hands and just start the adventure. Um, and then I sort of quickly realised that my sort of over-earnest, overwrought emails were not really getting the response I hoped. Um, but we went there together three times, so, and it's not a massive place geographically. So once you're there and you get talking, then, then it all happens. Um, yeah. it's, not, it's not things that have been put in place six months before, as I thought.
Um, so yeah, you just kind of get there, not in a rush, and then someone knows someone who knows someone, and then you find a lady with 65 grandchildren and 15 goats making yogurt. Amazing, three trips, I mean, you must have packed a lot into those trips. Well, we did two research trips, and then I did a couple of other trips by myself, um, or with my husband to do a marathon, and then, uh, and then another culinary tour. Um, and then we did a photography trip with our amazing Jenny Zarens, and then Sammy obviously goes a couple of times a year. I mean, the photography, I just think is phenomenal. It, it is. Yeah, the photography, but also the kind of cultural photography. Right. Just... We're all fighting at the end because you have a certain extent and then, you know, all these amazing photos and these amazing recipes and then the profiles and sort of the publishers kept saying, we can't actually go up any more pages. Yeah. For anyone who is thinking about you know, starting to cook from this beauty, what do you think are the core ingredients they should make sure they have in their cupboard? Uh, tahini is one of them. Uh, good tahini. I mean, get the, the Middle Eastern tahini or Palestinian tahini. Tara is already equipped. If <laughs> <laughs> uh, you shop online, Bellazoo does a really, they've just started doing this online. Um, and it's a, bit, it's a bit lighter than than this one, but I absolutely love this actually. It's really nutty and creamy and it's got a really lovely pouring consistency. Um, and with apologies to the Greek and Cypriots, we're not massive fans of the, 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 the um, the sort of suppressor one, which we find slightly claggy. So this is this is key. This is our little cult church. Yeah. And then uh, za'atar is, you know, I mean za'atar. You have to have za'atar. It's a, it's a very Palestinian thing. It's a Middle Eastern thing. It's an Otolengi thing. It's a very much Palestinian thing. It's an addictive uh, thing. We, yeah, and we use it in everything. I mean, I I sprinkle it in almost everything. I start my day with my eggs or with that and olive oil. So, but one of the recipes that people are going mad for in the book, and I remember it's one recipe I said to Sammy, you know, you're not, are you sure this isn't too simple to, to open the book with? It's just Hassan's easy eggs. Hassan is Sammy's dad. And they're just sort of simply, simply softly boiled. Um, and then they're just sprinkled with za'atar and lemon and, and uh, lemon uh, sort of flesh and spring onions. Um, and I slightly thought it was a bit too simple, but I think it's been a revelation to people combining eggs with za'atar as a seasoning. Um, yeah. And it's the dish that's sort of pretty much going viral. Yeah, I mean, I remember <laughs> when I did uh, the first video I did in the lockdown, it was the, the, the eggs and people were just yeah. crazy cooking it every day. You get so many posts and it's just amazing to, to see a very simple dish goes just crazy. And with Zata, it's great the supermarkets are doing their own brand of, of things, but just, just if it's got anything more than sesame seeds and sumac and Zata and salt, then, then it's not one that we really recommend. Zaitun do a really lovely, um, lovely blend, but it shouldn't have kind of eight, nine, ten ingredients. Oh, really? I'm going to go and check mine in a second. Tell me again, Tara, what should it have in it? Um, so sumac, sesame seeds, salt, and then Zata, which is a herb. Yeah. which has been dried um, and you can you know some people are making things with oregano in time that's kind of fine but it's not it's different to, to zata okay yeah. i've got a nasty feeling one in my cupboard has got loads of ingredients in it so yeah. yeah so don't use it i mean there's uh, some add also wheat or flour or other herbs to it uh coriander seeds no 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 yeah. cumin seeds yeah. okay. and then with with zaitun they also do a beautiful olive oil um, which is Palestinian, and if people haven't had Palestinian olive oil, it's really worth just saving up a few extra, 
extra pounds and buying this. It's just beautiful. It's a finishing oil um, and it's just really peppery and grassy and green. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just lovely. We tell the story of the olive oil tree and producer and farmer and distributor in, in the book. And the connection between olives and the trees and the land is yeah. obviously key. Zaitun means olive. And I think it's such a lovely um, profile story, you know, essay in there, because olive oil is something which you know, we all have and we all use all the time. And we all think of it as, as I think you say, being from certain places and, and Palestine probably isn't one of them. Mm, and yeah. so it was so interesting to kind of read, read that. So we've got preserved lemons, sumac, za'atar, pomegranate molasses, rose harissa and tahini. Mm -hmm. Would you guys say that is a good list of store cupboard to start to tackle Palestine with? No. Okay, that's great. I, I, I would disagree about the rose harissa. Okay. We don't have harissa, we have shatta. And okay. shatta, it's a lot better than harissa. No, actually, it's, it's actually as good, but uh, we don't- They do rose harissa for simple. There's loads of that in there. Yeah. Uh, uh, shatta for people that um, don't know what is it. It's uh, fresh chilies have been uh, fermented in salt and then we add to them vinegar and oil, uh, lemon juice, blitz them and then uh, just top them with a little olive oil just to keep them kind of uh, sealed in. Okay. And it's a really nice, uh, sometimes spicy, sometimes uh, kind of less spicy, it depends on the chilies, but uh, highly addictive and you can just have it with everything. I think you're right that quite a lot of these ingredients are quite addictive. When you start, once you start <laughs> using them, you really do just start yeah. to feel. But I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't come out with such a categorical no, Sammy. I think that was a pretty good, pretty good start. And then the spices are all very easily, as sort of get hold of a ball, the um, allspice and cinnamon and cumin. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Let's start to think about some of the um, recipes. Do you guys, I mean, we talked about the eggs, which is brilliant. Do you guys have any recipes that you are, that you would consider favorites, whether that means ones that you're particularly proud of, ones that really connect with you, or any, you know, any ones that you particularly really want to highlight to talk about? <clears throat> so many. <laughs> so many, I know, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Okay, well, should, well I'm gonna name one that I, that I'm, I haven't cooked it yet, but I'm very excited about. The chicken pie that's got the layer of potatoes at the bottom. Oh, wow, my, yeah. Again, I mean, it's so interesting which ones take off because it's absolutely delicious that, but it's, it's uh, maybe it's because people have got more time on their hands now because it's, it's a time consuming dish to do when, when um, you know, with the potatoes and then it's, you know, or you can do it without the phyllo pie if you want, which is what I often do. And, um, but it's absolutely complete showstopper. It's delicious. The chicken shawarma pie. Yeah. Um, and then you can you can just if you want you just double the filling so that you've got it got it either sort of leftover and you can freeze it or it'll last for three days or um or just yeah or just eat all of it i'll just eat all of it um i mean i the uh well that maybe i shouldn't come up with another chicken one but the chicken musakan which is a classic palestinian dish where you have chunks of chicken which are marinated in in a lot of the spices we use the allspice the cinnamon the sumac um, and then it, that, that, that's roasted and then it's served with, layered up with taboon bread or we just use flatbread. Um, Sammy tried to recreate the taboon oven in our test kitchen, but it wasn't working. So we've gone with flatbread um, and then sumac onions, onions that are sort of cooked down for a long time. So they're really sweet and then, and then, and have the kind of astringent sumac um, and then it's all layered up and then you have pine nuts and parsley and I like to drizzle tahini on. Um, and that's just delicious. I love kind of eating with your hands and pulling it with the bread and it's just a really nice sharing dish. 
I think you, know, you say that about the breads and about using the breads as like utensil, you know, to kind of, you know, scoop the food yeah. up and it feels so fabulous. Yeah, it, it, it's a totally sharing dish and people kind of just pull their bits and just kind of eat them. You can make a little kind of uh, uh, bite size or a little kind of um, um, wrap with the bread and just have it. And it always have a lot of olive oil and with all the juices of the chicken and the, the spice, the spices and all of the um, sumac. It's traditionally made in, uh, in November in, in uh, Palestine to showcase the new oil from the the olive oil season and it also really works if you want to do it vegetarian with either big chunks of cauliflower floret or big chunks of aubergine um, and then they can marinate in the same spices and it works the same way just cook them for a bit less than the chicken but so that's a really nice veggie option for the musakan. Yeah and another dish is the sumakia which is a uh, lentils that cooked in pomegranate and they have chunks of um, aubergine and caramelized onion, uh, chili. So you have all the kind of really uh, delicious flavors and it's kind of a full of kind of uh, um, layers of flavor as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's total vegan and it's just deliver all, all the kind of Palestinian uh, flavors there. Delicious. Uh, you That's have really the, kind awesome of the, the sourness, the comfort of the uh, lentils, the, the meaty aubergines, the, the caramelized onion, which is kind of a little bit crispy, and a heat from the, 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 the chili. It's delicious. Another one that I'm obsessed about at the moment, because it's so hot, is the one that's on the, the US cover. Um, one of the reasons I love, well, I love this, for lots of reasons, but one is that I'm a real batch cooker. So I, don't, I, I want to just make something that then lasts for three days, and then I can just sort of put it together. So this salad looks very involved, but you can make all the elements um, in advance. You've got this little gem lettuce, and then this burnt aubergine yogurt, um, and, then, and then smacked cucumber, which is diced and mixed with parsley and mint, and then the red chateau on top that Sammy was talking about. Um, and that's just absolutely delicious, either as it is with some crumbled feta on, or served as a side to, to sort of some, some salmon or something. And it's, it's delicious at this time of the year. Yeah, interesting you say about batch cooking. One of the things that really struck me, there's a section in the book where you talk about um, uh, cooks from Palestine kind of loading up the freezer with things yeah. that then can all be kind of brought out. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I mean, it's that uh, Palestinian um, kitchen always had that. They, they used to preserve and uh, dry and uh, kind of to celebrate, you know, the, 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 the season of things. But nowadays they also uh, freeze things. So when if you have guests come in uh, they will do a couple of main kind of dishes but the rest they will just pull it out of you know the freezer the fridge the kind of pantry and they will present you with this amazing kind of spread of uh, dishes and you just go wow how did they do that in like <laughs> one hour and a half and it's just like you have this whole wholesome kind of feast on the table in front of you uh, and, and it's just so it's, it's just so tied up with hospitality. The you know it's it's such a common thing to say that it sounds like a cliche, but just just that there's there's always the option just to pull up another chair at the table because the food is always there. So it's just this this freezer and this is is just so tied up with with the Palestinian hospitality. And I was thinking at the moment, too, people are still wanting to kind of batch cook and kind of you know for lockdown and you know just kind of you. Know, prepare for whatever may be happening in their life this is that you know a wonderful book for that as well yeah, yeah. which kind uh, of struck me as the surprise but yeah. i think people will, will need to get a um 
an extra freezer for that. Because <laughs> <laughs> here yeah. in England, unfortunately, sometimes we have this kind of little freezer. It's just not enough for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 I love the way that people are people are cooking, and then there's a lot more sharing of food going on these days. So, so I've I, I, I've got a pathological inability to do anything other than quadruple a recipe whenever I see it, even if I'm just cooking for myself. Um, but there's just always someone who can take it. So I just love the idea of, of just kind of turning up or leaving food on people's doorstep, you know. And especially at the moment, I think that's, you know, something which a lot of people are, you know, enjoying, enjoying doing it. Um, that's one reason I absolutely love Palestinian food and the table that you're presented with, because more often than not, it's, it's room temperature food that's, and I just, I just love that. I just think it just tastes so delicious and it just makes for a really kind of relaxed meal because there's something about food arriving kind of hot straight off the stove that makes you feel kind of slightly kind of, it's all a bit functional. Whereas it's just, it's just the whole vibe is more leisurely. It's all room temperature and it's there and made the next day, made, made the day before. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Um, so we're getting, I think guys, a lot of people are already cooking. Well, I guess you know it. A lot of people are already cooking from the book. Uh, someone's saying the Zarshar buns are out of this world, again, in capitals. Those, <laughs> Which one? I love the, uh, the Zartar buns. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah. Tell us and about the and, and we have the same dough in the book that's used in lots of different recipes. So again, you can double the double the batch and then either make, you know, that that, that can then be used to make the sfiha, which is the which kids love, um, which my kids think of as being just a sort of hamburger on a pizza, which it's clearly not, with apologies to Palestine to say that, but it's but you know, the little kind of dough um, that's then then got some meat sort of ground into it. So yeah, it's it's quite practical like that. Amazing. Um, but I'd love to, now we talked a bit about, well, a lot about the book, talk a little bit more about um, the Ottolenghi family, I suppose, and um, where this book kind of fits you know, within that. Sammy, obviously, we should start with you with that, as um, you and the Ocean obviously founded Ottolenghi. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the book is very much uh, under the same kind of family, which is the Ottolenghi. We all work for, for, for the same uh, family we always call it family because it's uh, once you come to work for us you never leave and <laughs> if you leave <laughs> and, you know <laughs> you'll be kind of gladly uh, adopted back uh, it, and it feels uh, when like we started the, the, sorry i was gonna say Go it feels like you're very you're wonderfully embracing of other culinary talents Definitely, yeah. And we always have uh, kind of younger generation that comes and work for us. And, you know, you need to not nurture that and work on it and kind of uh, develop that because it's what keeps the company fresh and also going. Um, we are, unfortunately, like me and, and Yotam and uh, Cornelia and Noam are getting slightly older now. So you just kind of have to... Uh, try to start to think about who's going to take the company kind of uh, and keep it going. But I think uh, people shouldn't underestimate the, <clears throat> the generosity of that because I think anyone who's involved with food or writes recipes or writes books knows that by nature they're, 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 a, they're a controlling person about what's on the plate and what's the narrative. So, so to sort of be the Ottolengian to kind of keep the, to keep the sense of identity at the same time as embracing and welcoming co-authors and talent and chefs come in from the restaurants to the test kitchen to develop their own ideas. I think it's really, I think it's really special and should just be really kind of recognized. 
Yeah, I think I think that is really special. You know, we um, talk a lot again at the Cookbook Club about um, the big name chefs or you know, brands, I suppose, want better braise, and it always comes up that the Otter Lenghi family are the, the ones who seem the most openly embracing of the collection of talents that operate within that umbrella word, and and therefore I think for people who are using the books, if they feel almost embraced within it as well because they feel that wonderful um, warm energy that's coming from it all. Yeah, and it's very much, uh, you know, like you, like you say, and also, you know, talented people, you know, you, you can't be kind of producing um, another restaurant, another kind of cookbook without kind of uh, this, this kind of family feeling, first of all, and also the influence from others. Um, you know, different nationalities and different talents and uh, younger kind of uh, way of looking at things, which is really, really important for, for all of us. Uh, life is, you know, you kind of live and, and learn every day and you just need to embrace that as well. I mean, when you guys started, is this what you foresaw? Was, is it, was this the plan? No, <laughs> um, it was. I mean, when we when we when we opened the, the first shop in Notting Hill, we uh, we just kind of knew that we wanted to sell really beautiful, flavorsome food and pastries. But uh, we didn't have a plan. We just wanted to kind of enjoy the fact that we want to cook something and people will come and buy it and. We grew up kind of organically uh, uh, over the years. We never kind of rushed into things, and we took our time, and we didn't do uh, you know another step without us kind of feeling that this is the right thing to do. Uh, so yeah, it, it kind of it's 18 years now, but uh, for what it is, we still kind of the four of us uh, looking after everything and kind of. Uh, um, branching in different direction but you know it's still the four of us around yeah and again kind of resisting all the invitations to expand elsewhere like takes takes real strength and kind of belief in that it's going to be okay because because the reason there's such consistency in the food is because you've got kind of four people traveling around sort of all day every day tasting all the food and in, in the restaurants and in the delis yeah. tara you mentioned earlier about the test kitchen can you just give us a bit of an insight into what that's like um test kitchen you can I mean, say no if you like if you'd rather not like, that's fine no 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 <clears throat> i think some people come to the test kitchen they're like oh is this the test kitchen because it the word test makes it all sound very sort of uh high-end and professional and we're all very professional but it's 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 very much designed with the home cook in mind because i think the secret to Odlingi recipes success is that they work for the home cook i think it's as simple as that um because they all go through this very kind of rigorous but very very practically focused um, testing in our test kitchen um, but we haven't got any kind of fancy kit or equipment it's there's three chefs who are working full-time developing recipes uh, for Yotam's column and and things um, and then there's Yotam at his computer he's sort of he's kind of slightly banished in the sort of corner people come in <laughs> I don't know quite why he's sort of chosen that spot um, and then and then there's sort of three 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 others uh, sitting at computers um, and it's under the arches, so we've got trains going over us in Camden, which is a nightmare whenever people are filming, the minute they turn the camera on, the trains kind of come rumbling. 
and then we, we're under one arch and then we've got our bakery next door um, and then we've got our web store next door where you can also buy all these great ingredients. Um, and it's just a really lovely creative space. Chefs come and go developing their recipes. Um, we have in-house sort of food demos and tastings once every two months for people who want to share their love of dumplings or wine or whatever it may be. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great space which gets very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer. <laughs> Roughly how many people are working out that space at any one time, do you think? In the test kitchen? Yeah. Five? Right, okay, so it's quite, so it feels, so again, that family word, which we keep using, it, it still feels that, that sense to it. Yeah, I think very much, I mean, yeah, producing a cookbook there, it's, um, it's still five people, I mean, we kind of, we always add one, one more person as an extra help, but right. yeah. yes. Yeah. And it's amazing when we are doing the cookbooks, it's such an intense, as anyone knows who's done cookbooks, it's such a madly intense two or three weeks, um, just the amount of food that's being made and we're running up and down the stairs and, and, and invariably we'll be sort of shooting a book in kind of February when it's absolutely freezing and, and, um, and it's, just, it's just like theatre, isn't it? It's just like putting on this sort of amazing show and these sort of props, props being carried up and down and it's incredible and everyone's completely broken by the end of it we have one enormous row and then a great big hug and then we're done <laughs> that's a very very good summary of uh, writing a book um and obviously you know at the moment um all the difficulties you know for the restaurants and the deli but i saw the other day that about notting hill yeah we so tell us about that it's exciting yeah we decided to open because uh, first we just kind of felt like um uh, it's not good to just keep it like this and uh, uh, it's been really well well received first of all and it's also a really really nice atmosphere for the staff as well um, I went there yesterday afternoon just to visit everybody and uh, such a nice uh, atmosphere around and people kind of uh, oh, we sold this and we sold that and you know this is happening and which is really really nice it's good for the soul of people as well and people very much uh, kind of standing outside and queuing and or they can call and order the food and it's it's kind of uh, makes you this is what we what we do best you know food and uh, deliveries and uh, people that can just call us and uh, this is what we have on the menu and you know they come and buy it or they just ask you to deliver it to them and also uh, some of the customers have been around for the whole time, haven't they? They've been around That's for like, over a decade, so it's it's a it's a loyal a loyal local base. Yeah, it, it must feel wonderful to be back, even in a different way. Yeah, it, it's it's really good. It's it uh, you feel like you know it's been going for so long now, and you feel some kind of normality. You know, just kind of uh, going to work and. Uh, uh, selling food and people come in and buy it and it's good for them as well because they they will get you know um, a good quality home cooked food and I think at the moment you know people having gone through the initial you know, panic of lockdown and the initial uh, overstress of that I think now maybe we're at a phase where people want to kind of connect more with enjoying you know wonderful food wh wherever they can get it so it feels like the right yeah, it's like sort of my, my local street a lot of the restaurants are now selling produce out of their things rather than rather than serving food and you know it's like the, the, the great appeal of borough market it's not just the food it's just the atmosphere and people are actually talking and standing in the queue and you've got to be pretty grumpy to be standing in a queue for an otolenghi croissant and not actually break into <laughs> chat. so 
in terms of community and just yeah, conversation and connection, it's just a really lovely, lovely thing which Borough Market is at channels. Uh, I mean, you know, the Borough Market have managed to stay open throughout. I mean, are, it is now just for produce um, and a limited you know, market, but it's no longer go and buy stuff and hang out. But I think it has been very important for the trader community, yeah. uh, but also very much for the local community who live and work to still be able to go down to the market and connect with those traders and still get those things that really mean yeah. something. Yeah, and uh, kind of uh, wanted to say that, guys, just go there, buy your stuff. It's really delicious, nice food. Even in Borough Market, it's very important that people know that, uh, you know, we are open and, um, you know, we are kind of there for you. And don't be kind of uh, scared or shy or don't want to stand in a queue as well. So just do it because this is how, you know, um, things will, be will get better. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think people will do that places where they feel a connection, hopefully like Borough Market and very much, you know, with the Oshlengi family, I keep using that word family, but it's sort of, it's a word which I'm just often kind of thrown around, but I really it's feel that. <laughs> um, right, so many questions, guys. We're going to have to uh, leap to some of these questions because um, we have a lot. Um, okay, so, so uh, someone's asking, what kind of honey do you prefer using in cakes? Honey? Yeah. Uh, we're using a Greek honey. Uh, it depends what, what we use it for, but uh, um, we also use a, a, a London-based honey, which is, um, I can't tell you about it actually, but because I'm, I'm, I don't have the, 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 the right information about it. Fair enough, fair enough. I know that there's one in London and one in Greek. Okay. Um, we have, uh, 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 do you have any recommendations for slow cooked meat recipes? Ideally so, from Palestine, I suppose. Yeah, so makia, which is, uh, it's in Palestine. It's, uh, um, we did it with um, oxtail, but it could be also with big chunks of uh, meat. With, it's got chard and uh, lemon and chickpeas and lots of sumac and it's finished with tahini. It's really utterly delicious. Uh, and, and we've got the, um, I mean, the, the chicken shawarma pie. I love the, they cook the chicken thighs for a long time and then they, they fall apart. And then there's the ultimate kind of lamb shawarma uh, that we, we pile into a pitta. But that, I think the lamb is in the oven then for about six or seven hours. Yeah. So they're, yeah they're in Palestine. Wow, amazing. Um, this is a good question. We should, I should maybe start with this. What does Palestine mean? Palestine. It's, uh, Palestine. In, yeah, in Arabic, we don't have the P, so they use F instead. So when you ask a local what's, where you're from, they would say Palestine and not Palestine. And then we, we first saw the word, uh, it was on a newspaper that was started in the 1920s um, uh, in Palestine. So that's where we kind of first saw the word and it just sort of said out to us. And then, and, then, and, then, and then we just really fell for it because it's, you know, Palestine is itself a loaded word. And for us somehow the word Palestine kind of transcends a lot of these things just just to transcend borders and boundaries and and time and place to sort of incorporate lots of things mm. um we have a comment here from something uh, they love how you guys um put grams of veggies instead of just saying one potato oh, sure. potatoes and things can be all different sizes so that's appreciated that's good we like the uh, thumbs up to the pedant in all of us <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, skip on. Um, where does falafel come from? Um, this person saying they have friends who think it's from Egypt, but uh, this person thinks it, it, that falafel are from Palestine. 
Well, the best yeah. falafel is served in Nativity Square in Bethlehem, for sure. Um, there's, there's a guy who's been making it there for many decades. The um, best falafel is I make at home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the question is about origins. Of yeah, origins, yeah. There's one thing that I, I remember seeing Sami and Yotam once in Pret-a-Manger and their faces, they saw this kind of cold falafel that had been made the day before. And it's, I didn't realize till I tasted falafel myself in Bethlehem that if it's not coming fresh out of the fryer, kind of piping hot, then it's just not falafel. And as with hummus, it should be served, you know, kind of slightly, slightly warm. It, it's from this area. You, you can't really trace it. It's not, there's no um, way you can actually go back and say it started there. I mean, yeah. I, I, be, I was reading this article about the, the, um, Egypt, ancient Egypt, and they had chickpeas, but who knows? And in a way, like, we just haven't gone down any of those sort of rabbit holes in our book. So, you know, you ask me as an outsider kind of what is Palestinian food. On one hand, there are dishes that I could tell you about that are distinctly Palestinian and in ingredients. But for me, it's about the people who make it and the place that it's made. Um, and that's why we spend so much time with telling the stories of people we've met, because for us it's more interesting almost than weather falafels from... Yeah, and I think that definitely comes you know, across in the book, and that's why I think this connection between the stories and the food is so absolutely, absolutely perfect. Yeah, exactly. um, okay, are there any particular green chilies to be looking for when making the shutter? <laughs> I bought about 500 grams of the wrong ones on Monday, as, I, as Sammy pointed out when I turned up at his house to make shutter. Um, so you don't, don't want to, I don't even know why I bought them, because I, don't, you don't want the really long sort of pale ones, because then they're, they're, they're sort of more like peppers. Um, but just the sort of the, if you shop in supermarkets, the, the stand, I don't, I don't think they have a specific name, just, you know, they're not jalapeno and they're not, they're just the, 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 the green chilies or the red chilies that that are about that size. You, you could do them with jalapenos. Uh, you could, I mean, you could do them with any chilies you like. It, uh, it depends on how spicy you like it. But supermarket normally have only two types, the, the longer one and yeah. the short kind of uh, stumpy ones. Mm -hmm. I had uh, my, my online delivery on Sunday and I bought 15 bags of, of uh, chilies because I wanted to make double the batch of shatter. So I wanted 500 grams for that. And I'm also an equal addict to Zog in Jerusalem, which is the coriander green chili. Uh, but instead of getting that, I got 15 bags of Thai chilies, which I definitely could not make into shatter. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, okay, another question, so many questions. Um, any recommendations of where to get sumac? Where do you guys get your sumac from, is the question. Recommendations. I mean, Otolengi web store. Excellent. Um, and also, I've, in, in lockdown, I've been using Sushef for the first time, and they're just brilliant. I think it's three ninety nine for delivery, but if you buy a big, a big, big bulk, then I think that's that's um, that's fine. And and their their stuff's great. I don't think that's Zaytun that's supplying Sushef. Um, or if you live near Edgware Road, Green Valley is absolutely brilliant for all the ingredients. And if anyone finds themselves at Borough Market, then um, Spice Mountain. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so also, if you have like a Middle Eastern or Turkish uh, um, shop next next to you, just go in and ask them for it. They they will always have a good 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 selection of them. Um, okay, we have another question. Um, are all the recipes developed here in the UK, or are some actually made in Palestine as part of the research? 
Um, a few of them were inspired by dishes that we ate in Palestine. Um, salads that we had in Haifa, a beautiful dish of okra, and we've got halloumi in ours that we had in a restaurant in Nazareth that was served to us by a, by a, um, a restaurateur who had very strong opinions about about what was what and, and, he, and uh, he had very strong opinions about everything. And the night before we went to this restaurant, it was Sammy's partner's birthday and we drunk too much. And so we decided we weren't gonna drink in this restaurant. And we sat down and the first thing he said is, oh God, I just hate it when, can you imagine if people come to my restaurant and don't have a drink? Like, okay, three beers. So, so some were directly inspired by some dishes we had there. And then we've got the classic Palestinian dishes. Um, and then, and then, uh, and then a lot of the other recipes are us taking the recipes and and developing them in a in a fresh way, so that the, so that we don't have mm. the book that's been written elsewhere because we didn't mm. want to do that mm. book. Do you, for how, how what for how long were you working on the book? What was the development time for it? Okay, we did two years. Uh, uh, we were lucky because we had uh, kind of extra time and, uh, uh, but yeah, two years is kind of a good time to work on a book. I yeah, I mean the lot, the the the, sh the photo shoot that we did, it was sixteen days, right. and it felt like three days cooking everything from the book and shooting it. It was just crazy. And did you do that in London? In that in was in, that was in the test kitchen, yeah. And then we were so lucky to have Jenny in in the test kitchen in Camden, and then we also went on a trip with her. Um, which was just incredible. She's like this little kind of Duracell bunny. Um, and we just, she was charged up with her batteries at the beginning and just didn't stop for this. And, you know, she would get up three hours earlier than us and go to bed three hours later than us. And all the photos in the book are sort of either taken at midnight or three in the morning and just sort of her sneaking away, just completely magic. I think she then comes home from trips and then sleeps for a week. <laughs> and did you guys share the writing? No. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to get insight into the division of labour, I suppose. Well, yeah, the division of labour was very clear cut, which is okay. I'm a very kind of all or nothing person. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I said no, I, I was being a bit cheeky saying that. Um, you know, I couldn't have done any of it without Sammy because it's me as the outsider observing him with his family, going on his travels with him. It's his his love letter home. And, and you know, we we're going in completely different directions because it's his love letter home. But it was my adventure into a completely new cuisine. Um, so yeah, Sammy would do it, would just share lots with me talking and traveling and, and, and also stuff that he'd write. But, but, um, I think in terms of the narrative arc of a book and my job at the, at Ossolengi is to kind of shape the narrative and kind of work out what the story being told of each cookbook is and what, what the hook is for the reader. Um, and I'm quite possessive about that being my role. <laughs> Well, when you do it so well, I can see how you would be. Um, but also, you know, you can only imagine the amount of you know, passion and knowledge you know, coming out of Sammy and everyone else that was you, know, you, you were visiting and then trying to distill that into something yeah. very readable, incredibly difficult. The, you, you worked with the Ottolenghi family for how long, Tara? Um, 10 years in January. So obviously very uh, simpatico, I suppose, with what's, with what's going on. And you have to, when you write in a book, you have to, first of all, uh, get on very well. And also, you, uh, you know, there's a purpose. You know, you, you, you're doing a cook together, a cookbook together. So you just kind of have to, um, uh, firstly, get on with each other. And also, um, um, try to, to get 
the best out of each other as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And just, and just share, share the same language, I think. I can't imagine writing a cookery book with someone for whom you didn't have the same vision about food or the table or just, just kind of just a shared language or sense of humour. Um, someone's asking, would you use Baharat, if that's close to the correct pronunciation, would you use Baharat as one of your spices or would you advocate using the individual spices that, that make it up? No, you can, you can use both. I mean, Baharat is absolutely fine. And in, uh, you know, in, in Palestine, they use, uh, each house will have their own kind of uh, spice mix, but Baharat goes with a lot of the dishes in Palestine. What is the mix? Uh, it, it, it really depends of um, uh, each each household. They normally have black pepper, uh, allspice, cinnamon, uh, clove, uh, nutmeg, uh, definitely cardamom. Um, I'm trying to think of others. That's good. You, 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 you just ticked off all the ones that I had in my mind. It's a long list, but that's the kind of essence, yeah, the nutmeg, yeah. pepper. Uh, ground coriander as well. It doesn't have cumin to it. Um, to one more question, I think um, we sadly will then have to wind up probably, but there's so many questions and gorgeous comments. A lot of people are cooking from your book, guys. Mm -hmm. um, people are just saying how much they uh, love it. One lady is listening to us while she's chopping chilies for her shatter. So I'm sure she's feeling it even more now hearing you guys um, talk. Um, so um, we're being asked by quite a lot of people um, to each of you to choose your favourite dish from the book. I know we, we touched on this earlier, but let's try and nail just one each. Yeah, no, I, I would go for um, the busakhan, which is the roasted chicken with uh, sumac caramelized onion, um, taboon bread or flatbread and olive oil, because I, I just think it's such a nice, easy dish to make. And it's just bang on all the flavours of, you know, Palestine from the sumac to the olive oil to all the spices that you use in the dish. Um, yeah, so I will, I'll go for the moussaka. That's beautiful. Sammy's stolen mine, so I'll, I'll say the thing that I'm doing, I've got on heavy rotation at the moment because of all the sort of big tomatoes that are around. There's this beautiful uh, silky tomato sauce called banadora and you blanch and peel your tomatoes and then cook them down in, in quite a lot of olive oil. Um, and then they, they just sort of turn into this silky sweet dip which you can just either have to sort of scoop up or you can just have it with whatever you're eating um, and then you toast some pine nuts and you've got some sliced garlic um, that's toasted on top so that's just just beautiful. I think I think it must be almost impossible to choose because there are so there are so 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 many. Um, one of the things I'm looking forward to when all this is you know, over, whatever, we go back to normal, whatever all those words mean, is going back to the cookbook club and doing this book because the, your, your family of books is always one which gets people the most excited and the most kind of love, really. And I'm not just saying that because you're talking with you. It's absolutely true. And I know that when we do Palestine, it will just be the most amazing feast but also the most amazing love kind of coming from it so i absolutely cannot wait to kind of get back to the market and get people cooking from it um one last 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 question though i will let you go um we're being asked um what's next for you guys that's a mysterious question okay <laughs> well, we had all these plans and then they were slightly thrown by you know 2020. <laughs> yeah, i mean i'm still for me it's um, i'm still um, Palestine. I mean, I don't, 
there's still a lot to do with, with the book. And I would like to ask both to go out there and just uh, uh, promote it more and celebrate it with people and cook from it and do demos and talks. And, you know, we haven't done enough. And I think uh, it will keep us for probably, you know, I think my, my fantasy is that this is going to be picked up by, uh, by Netflix food people who realize that profiling the 12 people whose stories we tell in the book, along with showcasing all the amazing food, is just the next Netflix documentary waiting to happen. I think it's got to happen. You know, everything you do from, you know, we talked about the yogurt making and then, you know, the olive oil and the refugee camps. And there's so many. There's so know, many amazing women women and men who are just doing incredible things in Palestine uh, and just positive, enterprising, delicious things. And it'd be so great to tell their story. And the wonderful lady who is doing the palace, um, the seed work and looking at sustainability. I mean, just amazing, amazing. And um, I will let you guys go, but thank you so much. Thank you, Angela. And thank you for reading the book so, so uh, amazingly. <laughs> Wait, we didn't too much. <laughs> thank you very much for having us. And, uh, um, to all of you watching, if you don't already have it, go and get it. This book is going to be your absolute favourite book to have. And you will cook and you will cook and you will cook and you will sit in bed and you will read and you will love it and you'll be entranced by it. I absolutely promise. Um, Tara and Sammy, thank you ever so much. Um, we will we will wind up now and I really hope that all of you have enjoyed um, our Borough Talks. Next week um, I'm talking with Kimberly Wilson who is um, a psychologist who does a lot of work about food um, and nutrition and how, um, how we feed ourselves for a healthy brain as well as a healthy body so that should be um, a very interesting conversation which I'm looking forward to. So please join us next time for um, Borough Market's series of um, food culture talks. Thank you all, thank you all so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.